If you brought a Bible with you to church this morning, it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bible to the book of 1 Peter, uh, where we have been for a number of, of, of months and uh, will be for a little while longer. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's one provided for you in the pew ahead of you. It is hardback and black. It will be on page 1016 of the pew Bible. I don't know what page we'll be on on your Bible, but if you can't find 1 Peter by now, I'm not sure what to tell you, really. Get a bookmark or something. We've been here for a long time. 1 Peter chapter 4, I'm going to read verse 7 and going to be reading down to uh, verse 11, I suppose. Verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, because it is your word that we need this morning. It is not my opinion or my advice, and I need your help this morning. Take your word this morning and send it forth and cause it to soften our hearts and implant your word into our lives so that it would bear fruit for the, your name, for your glory, so that people would see our lives and give glory to our Father who is in heaven, whose name is to be praised. Amen. So, about 450 years ago, a stargazer who was really good at math published a book entitled on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres, it sold a paltry 400 or so copies before he died. It was a very technical book, and it was not terribly well written. But the theory proposed within that book changed everything that we know about the universe. The author's name was Nicholas Copernicus. His theory, called heliocentrism, or sometimes heliocentricism, claimed the sun was at the center of our solar system. And thus, when you saw the sun in the sky moving across the sky, the sun wasn't actually orbiting the earth, but rather the earth was orbiting the sun along with all the other planets. And Copernicus's model that he proposed, it wasn't perfect, but the math checked out. And so then others, like Isaac Newton, took his idea further, and heliocentrism went from theory to fact Suddenly, the universe got very, very big, and the earth very, very small. Copernicus's book sparked a paradigm shift in astronomy known today as the Copernican Revolution. 
I grew up in a Christian home, and I always went to church. I suppose that God made me a Christian when I was a, a child. And when I was a teenager, God was pleased to give me a passion to read the Bible. I just always enjoyed reading the Bible. I didn't understand much of what I read, but what I did understand I loved, and I hung on to it as best I could. And when I read through the scriptures, what I saw was myself. I saw what God had done for me in in Jesus on the cross. I saw the blessings of God that he had promised to me when I was obedient. I saw what I needed to do in order to be a better person. And I would read stories like Abraham, obedient to God, being willing to give his own son for God. And I saw that and, and I saw myself and I said, I need to be like that. I need to be faithful to God and be willing to give my very best to God. And I would read uh, stories like Joseph, who was faithful to God in Potiphar's house, faithful in jail. And I thought to myself, I need to be faithful like Joseph so that I can receive the blessing of God to be uh, blessed and, and given prominence and to be a savior of others. Because you remember Joseph, he was faithful. God promoted him and he was the savior of his brothers. This is how I read the Bible, that if I was faithful to God, he would bless me in the same way he blessed those who were faithful to him in the scriptures. I read the B-I-B-L-E as the basic instructions before leaving earth. That's just what I knew. And then sometime in my mid-twenties, I came across a little book entitled, A Dissertation Concerning the End for Which God Created the World by 18th Century pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards. I may have mentioned him once or twice or every week. I read that book. I understood almost none of it, but what I did understand, the Lord used to perform in my life somewhat of a Copernican revolution. I realized the Bible that I loved wasn't written about me. The Bible was about God. It wasn't a bunch of instructions before leaving earth. What God, it was a, a bunch of words about what God did to save the earth. I wasn't Abraham in the story. I wasn't offering what I loved. God was Abraham giving up his own son. I wasn't Joseph being faithful in, in everywhere I was, God using me to save others. Jesus was Joseph. Saving his brothers. I wasn't David facing the giants. Jesus was the David in the story. God did not orbit my world. The world revolved around God. Everything had changed. And I started seeing that God was the center. God was the sum. God was the whole, the light in the sky. He alone was central and unique and singular in the universe. And I knew who God was before this revolution, but it was as if I lived in a broom closet and God had opened the door to a gigantic mansion with all of these other rooms and he was ever pushing upward on my view of himself and showing me just how big he really was. My Copernican revolution had just begun.
And so I began seeing in the Bible phrases like, for my namesake and for my glory. It seemed to jump off of every page. My orbit was shifting and God was becoming central. And what was happening was things were beginning to make sense in my life. Why questions that I had always had and had troubling answers to began to have settling answers. And God kept pushing up of his view, of my view of him, making himself more central and me less central. At the same time, I was surprised to find, having been dislodged from being the centerpiece in my world, I was surprised to find my life filled with peace and joy. When God's purpose moved to the center of my life, my purposes took to the periphery, and suddenly, my life made sense. Frustrations abated, and my, my life was filled with joy. And God was gracious to continue pushing and pushing. And too often, today, I give my heart to much lesser, petty, trifling things. And frustrations and discontent follows. And then God convicts me and I repent. And he takes center place again. And Christ becomes everything again. And the world makes sense. And so for the next 35 minutes or so, I pray that God does the same for you, for all of us, as we read through these words in 1 Peter chapter 4. I pray that God would grant to you a sort of Copernican revolution, that God's spirit would open your eyes and you would have a vision of the glory of the infinite universe of God's centeredness in his scripture. And so with that, we pick up where we left off last week in verse 7. It says this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It is an urgent call, as we learned last week, to God-centeredness, to live beyond yourself, to live for something greater than yourself, to be about the Father's business. It is the logical result of a Copernican revolution, that you are not the center of the universe, that God is the center of the universe. Your wants and needs and desires and ambitions are subordinate to God's. This is how Jesus lived. He lived for the Father's will, for the Father's mission. He set aside rights, divine privileges. He gave his life to God's glory and the gospel. Significance is defined by your relationship your life's relationship to God's glory. Meaning if it's true that God made all things for his glory, he made you for his glory, and your impact in the kingdom is only as significant to the degree to which God is glorified in your life and through your life. Meaning if what you do does not tend towards God's glory, it does not tend towards significance in any eternal way. And this is what Peter is saying in these verses. What we do, if it is done for his sake, then it matters. If what we do is not done for his sake, then it doesn't matter. Even little things like loving one another and being hospitable to one another and serving. It's adding droplets into the raging river that flows to God's glory in all things. And in this way, Cornerstone, everything we do, when done for God's sake, matters tremendously. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. 
So whatever you eat or drink, menial tasks of life, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Verse 8 gives us something to do for the glory of God. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Have an eager commitment to constantly love one another deeply. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Meaning, you're going to need it for all the sins. Don't just love, don't you just love how the Bible is just realistic? says, you're going to need a lot of love because you're going to have a lot of opportunity to show that love to people who don't deserve it. You're going to need a constant stream of deep love because there's going to be a constant stream of reasons to show that deep love. There's going to be a lot of reasons to forgive. Peter's saying that God is glorified in us when we choose to love one another when they sin against us rather than retaliating against them with more sin. Love covers a multitude of sin. The word love here, it's the word agape, which is the Greek word which means undeserved love. The word for cover means keep secret or act like it's not even there. And the word multitude, plethos, is where we get uh, the, the word plethora, So let me see if I can help you with putting that together. God will see to it that your brothers and sisters in Christ will do wrong to you enough times and enough ways to extend the utmost limits of your love, giving you zero reason to love them, but you love them anyways. God be praised. There are only two reasons I can think of for having not been wounded by the church or by God's people. One would be, you've never been to church. And the other would be, you just got here. And you need to stick around. And you need to plug into community. And you need to be vulnerable with one another. It'll happen. Because it always happens. Because that's how we grow. Conflict is what reveals the trueness and the earnestness of love. Think about it. Love is only ever truly earnest when it is covering sin. Love without conflict is weak. It's easy to love those that love you. Especially if they offer you something in return. Your insurance agent might be a nice guy or nice gal. They might really like you, but their love of you is predicated on you being their customer. Stop paying your bill and see how your dynamics of your relationship change. That's not love. Real love is demonstrated when we give it to others who give us no reason to love them. 
And this is why it glorifies God, because God loved us even while we were yet sinners. That we gave God no reason to save us. We were not, I hope you don't have an idea of salvation, like you were going about your life being a really good person, and God was so impressed with you that he decided to die for you. Because that's not the gospel. The gospel is that you were going about your life, not doing anything God liked, making yourself the center of the universe, not him, and spurning his lordship over your life, putting your middle finger in the air to your God, and he saved you anyway. That's the gospel. You gave him no reason to love you, and he loved you still. And so when we do this for others, this is a reflection of what God did for us, and in that God is glorified. God is glorified in us when we love one another instead of retaliating, when others sin against us and we choose to cover their sin with love We show a love to them like God showed a love to us. And this love, this shows that we trust in our God more than we trust in ourselves. And it shows that we are living for his sake and not for our own. Next verse. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality in, in the first century, it was a little bit different than it is now. Hotels and motels were not as much of a thing back then. Traveling Christians depended upon other Christians to open up their home with, so they could stay there. Preachers like Paul and Apollos and, and the Apostle Peter would travel, and he would have to stay with other Christians, and they would open up their home uh, to them. They would show hospitality. But the Bible says here to us, through First Peter, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So make it happy hospitality. Endure the inconveniences of hosting Christian brothers and sisters in your home for meals, for fellowship, for rest, whatever. Show happy hospitality. Some years ago, Sarah and I were traveling and we were in um, Cleveland there for something we were doing. And uh, a friend of a friend opened up their home to us, and we were able to stay there. We didn't know who they were, but they, they opened up their home to us, and they gave us breakfast in the morning. They sat with us late into the evening, and they encouraged us. They gave us the master bedroom while they slept in the basement. It was, to me, the best example of this verse I've ever experienced. They took nothing from us. They gave only to us, and God was glorified. So why is God glorified in hospitality? And the reason is, is because this is what God does with us. It's like what we do with love. God took us in and he fed us and he clothed us and he houses us and he gives us rest. We give him nothing in return. Our hospitality is the same when we do it toward one another. It is a reflection of what God has done for us. And I am encouraged when I hear stories of some of you inviting each other over to your homes for cookouts and to hang out, just to be with one another and encourage one another. That excites me and it brings joy to my heart. That's happy hospitality and God is glorified in that. Don't you see how easy this is? You get to make food, you get to eat food, you get to hang out with friends. When they do dumb things, you love them and God is glorified. It's piece of cake, basic Christianity. Then Peter goes on, 
And he says, you speak and you serve. And God is glorified. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. There's lots of different kinds of grace. Varied kinds. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies. Look at the first part of of verse 10. It's amazing. He's saying specifically, as each one has received a gift. You received a gift. You received a gift. You received a gift. Everyone has a gift. And the reason that God gave you a gift is to serve others. You steward it well. You use it to serve others, to glorify God and advance his gospel. And and those of us who have been in church for a little while, you'll recognize this word, gift. It's the Greek word charisma. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 for spiritual gifts. There are several, I think there are five passages probably in the New Testament that explain the spiritual gifts and they sometimes give you a list of spiritual gifts and not all the lists lists are the same. But a spiritual gift is basically a talent or an ability empowered by God the Holy Spirit to be used by the Christian for the building up of the church. It is a, is, is a, is a talent, it is an ability, but that the Holy Spirit uses, empowers you to give to others so that God's church would be built up. Which means, it's for one another. You have a gift from God that is for the church, and it is not meant for you, it is not meant for your self-promotion, it is not meant for your self-advancement, it is meant for the, the building up of his church, the encouraging and edifying of one another. What is your gift? I, I don't know what your gift is. Personally, I'm not a fan of spiritual gift surveys. Have you seen those before? You can take them online and they, you, you enter questions, uh, answer questions about yourself. And it supposedly comes back with a, a, a spiritual gift or gifts that you've been given. There's a few reasons why I'm not a particular fan of them. One is I'm pretty sure that's not what Paul meant for us to do with his lists Another is, um, don't we usually take those for selfish reasons? Like, I want to know what I got. I want to know what's my stuff. We don't usually take it because, like, how can I serve the church? Like, you see, the, you, you know, whenever you walk into a, a situation and there's a need, how many of you find it useful to say, oh, hold up a second, let me take a survey and make sure I have the spiritual gift to help you in your need? I don't find that to be all that useful because I don't think that's what Paul means by giving us lists. Another reason I'm not a fan of spiritual gift list is they can function as a cop-out. Oh, I can see that you're mean, but I don't really have, according to this list, I don't have the gift of mercy, so I don't have to be merciful. You can just be mean, and I'll be mean to you. So I don't have the gift of mercy. It's not a cop-out. Also, in the Bible... All those lists that they give you in the survey, it's always incomplete because in the Bible, marriage and singleness are gifts. And I have yet to come across the spiritual gift survey that comes back and says, you have the gift of singleness. 
Like, what do you do if you're married? Well, hon, uh, according to this gift on this list on Facebook, I have the gift of singleness. And she's like, I've been praying for this brother for the last 20 years. I'm not sure that's how those, those gift lists work. But what Peter does seem to be teaching us here is that the spiritual gifts of God can be divided into two categories. If you look at it closely, there are gifts of speaking and there are gifts of serving. Two categories, speaking and serving. So he says, whoever speaks, speak God's words, and whoever serves, serve by God's strength. Speaking gifts are those God-given graces upon preachers, speaking the oracles of God, the words of God. You know, as a preacher, it is my job, it is my uh, duty to rightly divide the word of God, to do my best to understand its original meaning and to share that with you in a way that you can understand it is not to give you my ideas or my opinions. My ideas about what you should do with your life are not useful. They're, not use, they're, they're as useful as one of those magic eight balls. They, don't, they won't serve you well. They will not help you know what to do with your life. What you need is not my opinions or my ideas. What you need is God's inerrant, infallible word. And so my job is to exegete the word to communicate in a way that makes sense and, and enable you by the power of the Holy Spirit to apply it to your life and to grow in grace. I pray, my prayer is that I do that all the time. Though I admit I'm going to probably get it wrong now and again. And if Brent is doing his job well, which I know he will, he will correct me and say, you missed it on that one. And I'll repent to you and I will go back and fix it. I'm not perfect and I don't intend to uh, try to be or try to uh, say that I am, I will try to be, but not say that I will. But I take standing behind this pulpit very, very seriously. I take it very, very seriously. And those of you who are becoming covenant members of our church, you should take it seriously as well. There, the Bible says that there are temptations for church people to want to put somebody behind the pulpit who scratches itches. And it tells people what they want to hear. And I won't do that for you. Um, I won't be mean. But I have to be faithful to God's word. And to not what you, you want. And so uh, we need to understand that this is a very serious thing that we do on Sundays. Preaching and hearing God's word preached. And uh, by God's grace, I uh, will attempt week by week, as long as I'm here, hopefully the rest of my life, to preach faithfully to God's word for the sake of your souls. We'll get to this in a couple of weeks in chapter 5, but the call of, of elder, pastor, is a serious calling. Last week, in fact, I read Charles Spurgeon tell his students, if you can be anything other than a preacher, be that. People who are preachers who are playing games send people to hell. So it's very serious. I take it very seriously. Let the one who speaks speak God's word. And then he says, let the one who serves stir, serve with the strength that God supplies. A few of us have speaking gifts. Most of us have God-given serving gifts. And in this 
if this is your church home, you should be serving somehow, some way. We have eight different servant teams. You can plug into them right away if you want to and serve your brothers and sisters. If you're interested in servant teams, grab a packet from the office. We'd be happy to give you one. You can look up the different teams and reach out to the team leader. The point is God has given you a gift and stewarding it well means using it to serve one another for the sake of God's glory. So we serve one another by the strength God supplies. Here's the wonderful thing about spiritual gifts. They're gifts. They come from God by his grace. They were powered by his spirit for others to glorify Jesus, which usually means that God will use your gift in a way to make it clear that it didn't come from your talents and your abilities from yourself, but that was God that supplied the strength to make it work and do the miracle. And, and in that way, he's glorified and not you and not you're not exalted. He's exalted. So God will always make much of himself in spiritual gifts. He will generally, in my experience, use unimpressive, ordinary people to do miraculous, extraordinary things for his glory. So that when people see it, they'll say, that's a, just like 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that's a jar of clay, This is a broken person who's not all that remarkable, doing remarkable things so that everyone will know that the suppressing power is God alone and not you and not me. And the reason Peter gives us for what God is doing is to hear in the great crescendo in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The reason we cover sin with love, the reason we show hospitality without grumbling, and the reason we serve one another is so that God would be glorified in Jesus Christ. The vision statement of our church is that Christ would be all and in all. And by that, we mean we want Jesus to be everything to you. We want him to be your soul's satisfaction and your greatest joy and your highest treasure. Because we know that when Christ is all to you, you will have a passion to make him known. Your joy in your God will spill over. And you'll tell everyone. And so when Christ becomes all in you, you tell others. You tell the world. You see that treasure hidden in a field. And you sell all to buy it. When you, when you feel the joy of God being your highest delight, you seek to make him known to everyone else in your life.
mission, local mission and global mission, is fueled by Christians who are enthralled by God in his glory, such that they can't help themselves but to share him with all who will listen. And so we work. Paul describes his ministry to his people. I'm a worker for your joy. So in a way, as a pastor, I work for your joy in Christ. To show you the sins that are keeping you from enjoying him. To call you to repent for those sins and to turn away from them. And to make him your highest delight. And in so doing, you find joy. And you tell everyone. And the church grows. Then comes the doxology. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end of all things is at hand. God will be praised. God will be glorified. God will take dominion. The question is, will you bring him the glory he deserves? Or you, will you attempt to steal it for yourself and damn your own soul? Will you participate with your brothers and sisters in bringing glory to the God who saved you? Or will you seek to make something else the centerpiece of your life? to the damnation of your soul. Will you do all for him and his glory? In the end, we all need a Copernican revolution. We all need to see that our lives will only work so far as Christ is center in all that we do. God has made the universe To bring him glory. Which means he made you. To bring him glory. Which means you won't be. You. Until you do. Bring him glory. You'll be some other thing. You'll be some other version. You'll be some other destructive thing. Orbiting some other planet. But whatever we do, we make God central in our life. Whether we eat, whether we drink, we do all for the glory of God. So this week, seek that very thing. When you go to work tomorrow, go to work for the glory of God. When you come home to your family and sit down for dinner, Do it for the glory of God. When you kiss your spouse tonight, do it for the glory of God. When you sleep, do it for the glory of God. And take a long, hard look at your life. Where is your orbit? Are you serving by the strength that God supplies in order that he might be praised? Are you loving 
in a way that he would be glorified? Are you showing hospitality in a way that he would be glorified? Take inventory of every element of your life. Let's stand to our feet. What we like to do at the end of the service is reread the passage and allow, sorry, priorities, Mary. We like to reread the passage and give you an opportunity to search your heart. Um, God the Holy Spirit uses His Word to convict us of our sin. Areas of your life that you're not living up to God's Holy Word. And what I want you to do for the next couple of minutes as we sing another song is to search your heart. And if there's anything in these words that you are not living up to, if you're not living for the glory of God in all things, then I would uh, recommend to confess that as a sin. You don't have to confess it to me, but you confess it to the Lord. Trust, because he went to the cross and died for your sins. You'll be forgiven of those sins. And that resolve from today on, you'll do what you can to live for the glory of God. And when you miss it, you repent again. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, cornerstone. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, dear friends, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. And show hospitality to one another and do it without grumbling. As each one of you has received a gift, let's make sure we're using it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. If you're speaking, speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. If you're serving, serve as one who serves by the strength God supplies in order that everything in your life God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, would you search our hearts this morning, expose our sin, and give us grace to confess those sins now. In Jesus' name.